the shadow masculine can kind of go to that overt, aggressive behavior. And the shadow feminine can look like the victim, but what's going on on her side is the covert. I'm just going to keep this little list of all the ways you're fucking up. And then one day I'm going to take it and just go, here, here's the 400 things that you've done wrong. And I'm just going to lay it all on you. And the man's like, what just happened? All right, Christine, welcome to the Man Talk Show. How are you today? I'm good. I'm happy to be here. The infamous Christine. I've heard so many good things about you from so many people, <laughs> by the Aww. way. <laughs> probably people I all love very much. <laughs> I would agree. I would agree. I think that there are probably people that, that love you and that you love very much. Um, but it, it's wonderful to have you here and I'm looking forward to our conversation. So let's dive straight in. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's start with the story, the defining moment. Mm-hmm. So tell us a story about a defining moment that made you who you are today? Well, this would have been a much different answer 14 months ago, uh, but I would that my answer now, currently, would be giving birth. Mm. Such a defining moment for me on so many levels. Um, I had a home birth and I got pregnant naturally in my 40s, which is already taboo. And then to have a home birth in your 40s, that's even more, you know, not really supported by many systems and professionals. That's another subject. Anyway, um, and after 36 hours of labor, things got to a point where I was probably going to have to be transferred to a hospital, which is not what I wanted. I've had a lot of medical trauma in my life and um, I have no judgment. However someone gets gives birth, however baby comes safely into the world, I just personally really felt like both myself and Athena, Athena my daughter, needed to have the birth at home. And luckily my husband was very supportive of it and I had a supportive team. And anyway, I'll spare the details of the story, but in order to birth her, I had to tap into a part of me that I I just really didn't know existed or I had forgotten. Leading up to giving birth, there was a lot of anxiety that I felt, not feeling super in my power at times, just you know, after getting divorced in my early 30s and then building a career all on my own in my 30s and everything that happened there, then the whirlwind of meeting my husband, there were just parts of me that I think just got fragmented because I was trying to be so many things. And in giving birth and, and having to do what I did to birth her safely, I tapped into a part of me that was just so strong and so resilient and had such a high pain threshold and was able to actually not even think about the pain or let the pain be a problem. I just was so focused on what needed to happen. And since giving birth, there's been a a level of anxiety that's been gone. Like just a, a, a new reference point to, you know, whatever happens, I, I can handle it. And that doesn't mean that I'm like this Zen master now and I have no doubt or no anxiety. It definitely comes up, but it just initiated me into a strength and a sense of resilience and a sense of power that um, I didn't know I had. And since then, there's just been a mama bear part of me that's really defined every choice that I make. I love that. It's like uh, what came to mind was the, the primal feminine yeah. You know, it's like this, yeah. this sort of primal feminine part that can be, you know, you hear the stories of like women lifting cars off, yeah. like flipping over a car, you know, to save their, yeah. 
their kid or something like that. And it can yeah. be incredibly powerful. And and also just my husband sees me differently since that. You know, like he he after seeing me do what I did and what we went through, he just he sees me differently. And I think that that's a beautiful thing for men to to have is to see the the woman that you love birth a child, you just have a whole new way of, of seeing her. And I think there's so many movies and cultural things where it's like, don't look down there. I never want to have sex again. And there's so much like non-reverence towards it where it really can mm-hmm. be this incredible thing that just makes your relationship even, even stronger. I'm, I'm, what was it like for you watching your partner give birth? I mean, it was very wild. We had a bit of a different experience. I've talked about this on the show in the sense that our son was breech. And he was, mm-hmm. he was oscillating between breach and transverse. Mm-hmm. And so he was not in a great way. Birthing position, yeah. <laughs> he was not in a, in a good position. Mm-hmm. And we were, we were going to be doing um, natural birth. I don't know if that's the correct terminology. I hope I'm not get, going to get in trouble for this. But like <laughs> the sort of like going to the, yeah. you know, the birthing center and, and mm-hmm. doing it that way. And, and when we showed up after her water broke, because he came early, uh, it was very apparent that he was in a bad place and he had mm-hmm. the cord wrapped around his neck a few times. And mm-hmm. so they had to mm-hmm. take him out. So she actually ended up going through a C-section, which mm-hmm. um, was not what she had planned. It was very interesting to watch her process that real time in the moment of like, he's in danger and we need to take him out to yeah. post that, you know, because she had been like training, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> no, I know. Re- she had really been training for it. And so, you know, I think it was interesting to watch, but it was interesting to watch as well, like her resilience around having something that she had been looking forward to for so long, not unfold the way at all that she wanted, which I think is a very, it's a very common experience, you know, in, in today's a, world. And, that's a common, in life in general, and especially in birth, you know, it's just, yeah. you can't control it. Um and like I said, however the baby safely gets out, thank God that hospitals That's and it. all those things existed so he can come out safely. And I, I truly believe that a child does in a lot of ways pick how they want to come for whatever reasons. And part of our job as mothers and, and fathers, just as parents, is to, well, this is not just in birth, this is just in parenting and it's so friggin' hard, is just to get out of their way. Like they have, like we <laughs> and we can, you know. I heard someone say you're the gardener, not the carpenter. I know mm. you 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 create the soil, you plant seeds, but you don't shave them and shape them into what you want them to be. Yeah, yeah, I like that. I like that analogy, and uh, it's interesting because my my wife and I we have this joke. Like I, when I, when we got married, I had written this. I don't know if I would call it a poem, but I had wrote something called Two Stubborn Hearts" because we mm. have this joke that we're both just ruthlessly stubborn, <laughs> which we're working on. <laughs> like we are just relentlessly stubborn human beings. <laughs> and I think in some ways it's what has made us, you know, both individually successful, but, you know, in a relationship when you have two stubborn ass people that can make it challenging. And so anyway, I, I wrote this, this piece that I read off at our wedding called Two Stubborn Hearts. And after our son was born, uh, Code, it's funny because one of the things that I've talked about now is like, yeah, we have three stubborn hearts in the household and, uh, and he's, you know, he, he fits right into the family dynamics. So <laughs> it's interesting to see how they, you know, he's, yeah. he's 25 months and has his own little personality, but mm-hmm. so, 
tell me about this part that you tapped into. Like, mm-hmm. is that when you talk about it, is it this primal aspect? Is it, you know, you and I were talking before about anger, you know, women mm-hmm. in anger. And one of the things that I wanted mm-hmm. to talk about is how do we as men traverse and navigate, you know, when a woman in our life is really angry. And so are those two things correlated or this is like a different thing that we're talking about? I think on on some degree, everything's correlated, you know, Um, Mm. but I'll I'll split them up and we'll see if we can find how they're directly correlated. For me, that tapping into that primal part was more of a reclamation of who I naturally am and what I think we all have access to. And in that moment, there was no room for stories. There was no room for insecurity. There was no room for limiting beliefs. There was no room for my inner critic. There was no room for any of that. Mm. And I got to experience for a moment what is possible when all of that goes away. And in some ways, I, I want to give birth again, just <laughs> get back to that portal because in so many ways, birth is a bit of a medicine journey. It is an altered state. And it just, it reaffirmed my commitment to the work I do in the world because there's, you know, people want to find themselves. And I always say it's remembering yourselves. It's reclamation. It's not anything you have to discover. Personal development work is so much about just removing what has gotten globbed on top of our natural essence, all the protective mechanisms, all the compensatory strategies, all the limiting beliefs, everyone else's voices and opinions and and the programming that happens, both the internal programming we create because we're like, oh, in order to get love, I have to be successful. And the external program we get from, you know, whoever that powers that be or parents, whatever, of like, in order to be successful, you need to be a doctor or whatever it may be. And so in that moment when all of that disappeared, it was like, whoa, what's possible? And I think that's great for all of us to think about. And, you know, you don't have to give birth or do ayahuasca to get to this state of moving into, okay, how do I stop searching? How do I stop seeking for something? And how do I actually get into reclamation and remembering and removing all the things that are just in the way of who I naturally am and what I naturally desire? Because, you know, we have children that are about a year apart, it's super clear who they are and what they want. And, and it's such, you know, I've been doing inner child work for pe- with people for 20 years and having a child just confirms everything I've been teaching for so long of stop trying to figure it out. Stop trying to find yourself. You're right there. Just remove all the stuff that's in the way. And then your second question, did you want to say anything to that before I continue? Yeah, no, I, I just wanted to, I mean, it's interesting because I think like I agree with everything that you're saying. And I think the the like caveat that I would add in is I, I think that sometimes there's certain people that actually have to build an ego first in order to deconstruct mm. it. You know, I think that like what you're talking about, I like I think you nailed it. But I think I, I would just add in that I think that there's certain people who have been so buried under the weight of other people's opinions mm-hmm. and other people's needs and wants and et cetera, that mm-hmm. they actually have, not that they don't have a real sense of self, but their, their ego construct is so predicated on other people's opinions and perspectives mm-hmm. that it's like they almost need to go on a journey of constructing that ego first in order to 
have the right to tear it down, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, that just sort of came to mind as you were talking. Mm-hmm. So I was like, yeah, I think what you're saying is, is really accurate. And I think that there's some people who are just so lost in the, in the fold that that ego construct hasn't even really fully formed. And so we yeah. have to go about sometimes helping them to form that sort of egoic nature before they can go on yeah. the, the soul's journey. What do you define as the ego? Ego, yeah, I mean, I love Jung. I always have. And so <laughs> I usually go with, you know, his angle of the ego, that the ego is this identity construct that wants to protect itself at all costs. And that that's the sort of part of us that's trying to stay fixed and mm. to stay unchanged. And mm-hmm. it's the part of us that it's the, it's our identity that we show the world, right? It's mm-hmm. like, here's who I, who's, here's who I am and who I think I am and who I think I want you to see. Would you mm-hmm. classify something different than that? Well, and there, my whole opinion about most things is like, there's so much we don't know. And there's mm-hmm. so much we don't understand about the human psyche. And this is where, so I'm a spiritual psychologist. That's what I have my master's degree in, spiritual psychology and conscious health and healing. So I have a lens of, okay, there might not be an ego per se, if we describe it in Jungian terms, but there's always a soul Mm -hmm. and there's always access to that. And so from my perspective, like, I feel like there's a, and not just I feel, I've seen that there's a human spirit and a soul that we all have. It's just really hard for some people to get access to it. Mm-hmm. So we may be saying different things, but meaning the same things. And I'm not disagreeing with you at all. I love what you said. My way, my route would be a little less about the ego and more about the soul, mm-hmm. like bringing that, that life force back in. Because I think when we're talking about someone who's just been stripped away and been so programmed in the person you described, it's like they've lost connection with that soul. They've lost connection with the essence of like really who they are. Because for me, we're, we're spiritual beings having a human experience. And so that, that way back home is finding that soul and telekey, that, that part that can't ever be squashed, but it, can, it can't ever be killed, but it can be very, very, very dimmed. Mm. So I love what you're saying because perhaps the really, the, the holistic approach of really helping with the, the ego and the identity and the sense of who am I in the world, in addition to the spiritual aspect of who am I as a spiritual being having a human experience? What is my connection to source, God, whatever it may be that can never be damaged, that can never be taken away from me? And like, where do those things come together to form the fullest expression of myself? Mm, Yep. I love that. I think we're pointing in a similar direction, you know? Yeah. What yeah. is it? The, the, the finger pointing towards the moon. I think that's the Buddhist, the, the Buddhist <laughs> saying. It's like we're pointing at the same thing, but we're pointing from different places. Um, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So, okay, let's talk a little bit about the second part of it, which is a woman's mm. anger. There's many things that I wanted to talk to you about in terms of relationships and women, because you, you work quite a bit with women. From my mm-hmm. understanding. But women and men and couples, but I would yeah. say the majority, I would say 
75% of my people are women. Yeah. And I think for a lot of men that tune into my show, women can sometimes be an anomaly. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay. <laughs> women feel the same way about men. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. It's the beautiful thing. It's why we have these dialogues. So tell me a little bit about women's mm-hmm. anger, how they relate to it, how, what they've been conditioned to think about mm-hmm. it. And, and let's just traverse this path a little bit. Yeah. Well, I'll start with why I'm so passionate about this. So at the age of 11, I was put on Prozac and I was on antidepressants and a bunch of other over-the-counter and pharmaceutical stuff. Um, And I didn't get off antidepressants until I was 30. And it took me about almost three years to get off them Mm -hmm. completely. And one of the people that helped me so much during that time was my very first coach. I'd been seeing therapists since I was 10 my very first coach, and I would say spiritual guide, her name is Mona Miller. Unfortunately, she passed many years ago. And she was a eccentric, stuck in the 1980s with her fashion tastes, like former actress, but just had this spiritual consciousness and this love that I'd never experienced before. Like I kind of didn't know what to do with her when I first went and saw her. So I went and saw her and... I said, you know, I'm on antidepressants. And this was, this was in my early 20s. I really was nervous during our first session. And I was telling her all my, my sob story about being on antidepressants and being with an addict and all these things. And she looked at me and she said, baby, you just have one problem. And I said, just one? She's like, yeah, well, just one for now. I'll never forget this. She said, you're so angry. And I said, I'm not angry. <laughs> I'm not angry. I'm depressed. She's like, you're angry. You're angry about a lot of things and you've never gotten that anger out. And once Mm. you start getting that anger out, things will become a lot more clear. Depression will go away. And I can't remember everything she said, but she taught me how to not just feel anger and release anger in a healthy way, but feel all emotions. Because for me, and I'm not saying this is true for everyone, But for me, depression was so much of a repression issue. I think it also had something to do with gluten when I was a kid. I was a very sensitive, empathetic, I still am, person and child. And I was just feeling so much. And there were definitely things that had happened in my life, even things my own parents didn't know about. And I was just holding everything in. And then things continued to happen throughout my life. And I had the identity of being kind and put together and achieving and smart. I was never known as like that fiery person. And so my anger was kept hidden and suppressed and it came out. And this is, this is some clues that you are angry or a woman is angry. It came out as irritable, as emasculating, as controlling lack of sex drive or interest in it at times, not knowing my own passion, having a strong inner critic, which made me critical of others. I could go on about the ways that anger leaks out, uh, physical symptoms, never being satisfied, having high expectations, like all kinds of things because I wasn't dealing with my own anger. And the thing about anger, really any emotion, but particularly anger and rage is that they are very like fiery things and it takes a lot of energy to suppress them. 
And so when you're using all that energy to suppress them, your life force dwindles Hmm. and it has to leak out in other ways. And so since 2006, I've been facilitating a retreat for women. And one of the things that we do is a huge anger burn. And let me just distinguish the difference between like a cathartic release. Like you go to a personal development workshop and they say, okay, everybody scream and use your voice. And ah, that's a great cathartic release. Rage rooms, great cathartic release. Boxing classes, great cathartic release. There's a difference between actually emotional processing and getting to the core of the anger and using the words and going back in time and letting yourself have a voice when you didn't versus just catharsis. And Mona was the first person to really teach me how to really do anger work. And I started doing anger work, which consisted of getting a pool noodle, cutting it in half and having a big pillow and whacking it and using words and letting the words and the memories take me where I needed to go. Not reliving trauma, but giving myself a voice when I didn't have one. Mm. And I was like, oh, wow, I really am angry. I've got a lot that I'm upset about. I've got a lot that I'm angry about. And that was one of the key things that helped me get off antidepressants because I wasn't trying to keep this huge ball of emotion inside. And I see this in my relationship. Um, You know, Steph and I, we've been together five years and our relationship was just very fast. We met, we got married three months later and then we moved to Austin and then we got pregnant. Like it's been a lot in five years and his career just took off and there's been so much change for both of us. And there was a lot that we had to work through, especially with the birth of our child, because I don't think either one of us were prepared and we didn't have super clear agreements and expectations mapped out. For two people that teach this stuff, we were pretty stupid in terms of really preparing for the life-changing event of having a child. Um, And I was just harboring a lot of resentments, you know, and wasn't speaking them because that's the thing that can often happen in the shadow masculine and feminine the shadow masculine can kind of go to that overt, aggressive behavior. And the shadow feminine can look like the victim, but what's going on on her side is the covert. I'm just going to keep this little list of all the ways you're fucking up. And then one day I'm going to take it and just go, here, here's the 400 things that you've done wrong. And I'm just going to lay it all on you. And the man's like, what just happened? So that, that covert holding on to things is is just it's a different side of the same coin of of really deep hurt you know and not dealing with our anger and it's been super important in our relationship that one i take responsibility for when something's upsetting me i voice it not in a blaming way but in a self responsibility and vulnerable way but the dynamic has been you know, Steph was raised in a Greek, Italian, Australian, like rah, everybody, everything, everybody says everything. There's yelling, it's loud. Like when he's, when I say stop yelling, he's like, I'm not yelling. I'm just speaking loudly. And I say, no, you're yelling. It's like, no, I'm speaking loudly. I'm like, no, it's yelling. So we have a very different radar of <laughs> what is, but the yeah, threshold, that's what I'm looking Sorry, Sorry, like mom brain, I don't remember words. Um, and so the dynamic has been, I've been afraid sometimes to come to him. And so what he has had to do, and he does it well most of the time, is make it safe for me to bring my anger towards him. Mm. And what my responsibility is not like blaming him and finger pointing and shaming him and emasculating him, but being really clear about what I'm angry about and him 
holding that masculine presence and just listening to me. I mean, I remember one time we had a, we just were not in a good place. And he came in with a big pillow and he held it. And he's like, just hit me and yell and tell me all the things you're mad at for as long as you need to. And I was like, really? You won't hold any of it against me? He's like, no, just get it out. I will hold this space for you. And in so, in so many ways, it was such a turn on as well for him to do that. I mean, I definitely hit the pillow and I definitely let it all out. And I don't just mean to turn on sexually. I mean, a turn on in terms of like turning back on my feminine <laughs> because in that moment, he made it safe for my anger. Mm. And the other thing that I think that, you know, there are different ways, different ways women and the feminine express. So some women can have more of that there's a term for it. This is a mom brain thing. It's like describing like a hot, crazy woman. I can't remember what it is, but anyway, it'll come to me at 3 a.m. I'll text you and be like, that's the yeah, word right. I'm I'll, I'll plug it. I'll plug it in here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anyway, but there's there can be that feminine archetype where she's just like, you might be a man thinking, oh, my woman has no problem with her anger. She's fiery. She's this, she's that. But if it's, if it's like not con- contained is the wrong word, if it's erratic, if it's explosive, if it's all over the place, if it's like this kind of destroying anger, that isn't healthy expression of anger either. You know, oftentimes for a woman like that, there's deep grief and hurt that she hasn't gotten to and the anger is on top of that. So for me, one of the things that's been so integral to my own life and my work is teaching people, but especially women, like what anger is, because we all have it. We just have different ways of expressing it and different ways of repressing it and suppressing it. And how do we process it and release it in healthy ways? So we're not being like that covert where it's eating us up inside and leaking out as irritability and all these other things, or that overt of being just like crazy, crazy, I put in air quotes, because that's often what, how we're described. And how do we really find the power in it? Because, and I'll wrap this up soon because I've been talking for a while. What is so beautiful about our anger is that it's where our passion sits. Mm. So our passion um, romantically, our passion career-wise, our passion for our hobbies and our preferences, our passion for just living life. If, If we haven't processed our anger, we're often disconnected from our passion. So it's just so important. It's so important. Yeah, I think I've I've said the quote on the show before, but David White, who's like my favorite writer mm-hmm. and poet, has a whole thing on anger. And he says that anger is the deepest form of care and the deepest form of protection for another for a whole he's got like a whole thing on it. But I think yeah. I think it's interesting because my, my wife is a couples therapist and we've worked with a lot of couples over the years and we've done a lot of events, you know, so I've got to work with, with women quite a bit over the years. And one of the interesting things is the stigmas around a woman's anger. And I think right. the commentary, the sort of like rules that a lot of women abide by, you know, within society around their anger, the shame around it, the fear of letting it out, the what, you know, if I let it out, I might be abandoned, all all these types of things. But then on the other side of it is it can be very confronting for men to hear and receive a woman's anger because there are women who, whose anger comes out in very unhealthy ways. You know, like I have a number of examples. I mean, most of them are from when I'm younger, but I have, you know, a couple of examples of women whose anger was 
really wild and dangerous and violent. And it's one of those things where as a man, I think we can feel handcuffed, you know, in a relationship with a woman because like, well, when a man's angry at me, I know what to do. I know how to handle that. I know how to engage. And if it escalates to a certain point where there's, you know, where it crosses the line and a threshold, it's like, I know what to do in those situations too. But with a woman, it's like, well, there's those rules don't apply, (laughs) you know, and sort of diffusing it is very different. So what have you found to be effective and ineffective? Because I can hear the guys listening to this podcast being like, okay, what do I do when my wife or my girlfriend or my mom or sister or who, you know, yeah. the, the women in my life are angry? How, how do I actually handle that and address that in a meaningful way? And mm-hmm. where's the line or the threshold for me to be able to say, okay, we need to pause or we need to step away? Right. right. Great question. So, well, first let's, let's go with what not to do. So one, you don't want to be aggressive with her. So yelling back at her and telling her you're so angry or you're so crazy or you're so this or you're so that or getting into like that kind of argument where you're both yelling, that's not going to get you where you want to go. Neither is being passive and just taking it. I think a lot of men often think that they just have to take it because they're the man and that's not healthy for the dynamic either because Anger in itself is not wrong, but anger directed at someone because you're not dealing with it yourself is not healthy. And there's a difference between expressing anger and projecting anger. And I think what you're talking about more is the projecting anger. You know, like when my husband came to me and said, here's the pillow, hit it and let me have it. He set the context and and like made that safe. I would never just start yelling and hitting him with, without that kind of permission, without that kind of context. So a couple things. Number one, I would say, look at why you're in a relationship with this kind of person. Because if you're in a relationship with a woman who is projecting her anger constantly at you and isn't doing anything to deal with her hurt and deal with her resentments and deal with her anger, and it's just protecting it all on you and expecting you to take it or somehow... You're both getting off on the arguments and the constant anger. First, I would say, what is fueling that? What wound is is attracting you to this type of person? So deal with it on your side of the street first. An example, maybe I can think of a client who honestly had women abusing him. He would just go from one to the next. And sometimes it would be physical where they'd push. But a lot of times it was just emotional and mental, being angry telling him he's a piece of shit and then like being all nicey-nice when they want something and just a lot of that. And, you know, it stemmed from having a mother whose love he constantly felt like he had to chase, never feeling like enough for her, her being super critical. So of course, he's going to go out and look for, I mean, that's what the subconscious wounded child does. It goes out and looks for who reminds me of mom and dad, let me date them because maybe then I'll get what I didn't get from mom and dad. So with that client, you know, it wasn't, okay, what do you do in this relationship? It was really, okay, get out of the relationships, stop dating and deal with the why you're attracting this type of person into your life because it's not healthy. Mm. So that's the first piece is often like, is this the most healthy relationship? You know, is this person willing to work on it? And if not, maybe an exit strategy is something to consider. 
And if you are clear, like, this is my person, I'm married, we have children, she is willing to work on it. This is just something that is in our dynamic and I'm willing to, to, to come and do the dance. Then it's keeping that, that masculine presence of, again, not being passive and not being a pushover, but really being saying something like, I can see that you're angry. And if you want to have a discussion about this, we can pause or I can set up a pillow for you with this pool noodle and you can direct it there. Don't direct it at me. Like having those boundaries, but supporting her expression. So, and this, honestly, I do the same thing with my daughter. If she was getting really angry at yelling at me, I'd be like, you're angry. I can see that. I plan to have a little angry area for her where she can have her little pool noodle and she can get it out because I want to teach her early. It's healthy to have emotion. It's not okay to direct that emotion at someone. Mm. And so redirect as best as you can. Having a third party help is key to that too. And also like, this is a little advanced, but really what is underneath all that anger is a very hurt, very scared little girl. And so what can you do to help her little girl feel safe? What can you do to help her actually move into her sadness, into her vulnerability? Is it when she's really angry, just going and physically like hugging her and holding her through the rage, through the anger and just be like, I'm here. I love you. I'm here. I love you. You're safe. I love you. Because again, often underneath the anger, if you've ever watched a child have a temper tantrum, after the rage comes the tears, you know, and then comes the nervous system regulation where they're like, (laughs) and then comes the calm. So if you can move in physically and both with your physical presence and your like emotional presence, hold her and contain it, not suppress it, but contain it. Because that's on some level what she's really wanting. Mm-hmm. That the anger feels like something she can't control. And she actually wants to feel held in that moment. She doesn't want to be silent. She doesn't want to be suppressed, but she wants to feel so not out of control. So those are just some things. I think it depends so much on the nuances of the dynamic of the relationship, of the trauma, of you know, how your inner child is showing up with her inner child. And like, there's so many levels and layers, but those are just some, some overview ideas. I think that's great. I mean, one of the, as you were talking, a number of things came up. First and foremost, I do think that within the spiritual space or however we want to label it, I do think that there has been a sort of notion put forth of like, you just have to hold space for her anger. And whatever comes and just let her express whatever, you know, whatever it is. And, and I, I, I think I've seen that be really unhealthy and I've heard of exa- yeah. so many examples of that just going south. And it's like, well, you, you know, you as a man aren't responsible for your partner's anger. Like that's just, right. <laughs> that's not, there also has to be boundaries right. and, and parameters, you know, letting her throw yeah. dinner plates at your head probably isn't, uh, you holding space for her anger is a little bit of nonsense. And so <clears throat> I like what you're saying that there's, there's boundaries around it. I also think that part of it is really knowing your partner and having mm-hmm. a kind of nuance. Like my wife, Vienna is very fiery. You know, she's got this beautiful fire to her and I've learned how to work with it really well. And I don't always get it right, but 
you know, it's knowing the nuance of like, can I poke her a little bit right now and, and, and have a, you know, have like a laugh about it and be like, oh, you're really pissed off right now, <laughs> you know, and, or can I just give physical contact, you know, mm-hmm. and, and kind of, like you said, wrap my arms around her and hold her and to really kind of discern where is she at right now and what might be helpful and supportive. Right. And I think that comes with time. I also yes. think it comes with you have to be comfortable with, I mean, I'll just speak my own experience. Like the more comfortable that I've been with being like, okay, she's angry and I'm okay. Right. Yeah. I'm still safe. I'm all right. Even if she's pissed off at me, it's like, all right, you're angry at me. That's okay. And yeah. I think if we can start with that one simple foundational piece, you're angry and I'm okay. That sends up like the container for everything else after that. <laughs> but if yeah, you're no, angry and I'm not okay, we're fucked. You know, it's like, we're not going to go, it's not going to go very well from here. So I, I appreciate you setting some of that up. I want to switch gears a little bit and maybe we'll see if this ties in some of that anger piece. Cause I think this is, it's an interesting conversation and I think you will have something interesting to add to it. There have been a number of studies recently that have been coming out about how in America specifically, 42% of households, women are the primary uh, breadwinner within the household. And I think that a, a lot of what's happening relationally between men and women, it's interesting because I don't see this getting talked about a lot. I don't see this whole conversation of a lot of households in America the roles have changed. The expectations have changed. You know, what women are wanting from men, what men are expecting from women, I think has changed quite a bit. Do you see this in some of your clients? Do you see that, you know, women are in these positions where they're making more, they're more of like the breadwinner at home? Do you see it causing complications or, or problems? Is it okay? Are people even talking about this in relationships? Like, how do you see this showing up? Because I think one of the, and I'll, I'll end with this one piece. One of the things that I find fascinating is that along with that research is the research that predominantly women want a man who earns as much, if not more than them. So women are still wanting men who out earn them. And so when we have this massive discrepancy, it does seem like the power dynamics, if we can call it that, mm-hmm. or the polarity or whatever terminology you want to use that, that fits for you, it does seem like the power dynamics between men and women have really been shaken up. And it yeah. does seem like relationships are suffering the consequences of that. I don't know how else to say that, but that they're, yeah. that that's really showing up, I think, in a lot of relationships. So what what's your insight into that? I'll just leave that sort of as an open door. Yeah. Oh my gosh, there's a lot to unpack there. So I'll start with saying that was Steph and I at the beginning of our relationship. Uh-huh. So I, I was married once before, got divorced in my early, early 30s and was single my whole 30s. And met Steph, and I was super clear when I was calling in my next man that I wanted someone like everyone in the study who made as much or more than me for several reasons. One, it feels safer. Two, I didn't want to not be attracted to them because I was making more. And three, because I think it's programming in a lot of ways. 
You know, I grew up in a household where my dad was the breadwinner and I wasn't. And But the, the biggest thing was, the thing that came up for me in dating a lot is men would say, you're intimidating. And I hated that because instead of being like my ambition and success being attractive, it was intimidating. And it felt like, well, that isn't true for women to men. Why is that true for men to women? Well, I guess it can be true. Women can be intimidated. But if we're generally speaking, I don't hear too many women say, I was really intimidated that he made that much money. Yeah, you know, it's, little, it's, not, it's, they're, it's not- They're intimidated maybe in a diff, like a physical in way. In a different so way. Yeah. So when I met Steph, I was at the level I was at and he was over, I don't know, 80 grand in debt. And I was like, huh. Well, everything else totally lines up except for this one huge thing. And it was a real conundrum for me. Because I finally met a person who I really connected with on all levels and had, was doing the work and everything else that I wanted and was I was attracted to you, but like just wasn't at the place in his career that I was, not even close, not even close. And I had many friends be like, are, are you sure? And then when I said we were getting married, because the other problem was he lived in a different country. So for us to be together, really the only answer was to get married. That was it. We talked to seven immigration lawyers. And like, well, if you guys are really serious, just get married. No pressure. And I had so many people, including my father, be like, you better get a prenup. Don't do this. Like, what are you doing? You don't want to be the breadwinner. And again, if the roles were reversed and he was the man who made a lot and I was the woman who didn't, I mean, maybe there'd be conversation of a prenup, but I don't think there would have been as much like, ooh, like this is, you know, Christine, what are you doing? And what it came down to was for Steph, his success and the amount of money he made didn't define his masculinity. And it didn't impact our polarity. So when I was with him, even though for the first part of our relationship, I was paying for everything, he held such a strong masculine pole. And he also held so much confidence in his work and his ambition. And I really felt like, it wasn't like I saw his potential because I never say date someone for their potential. I saw his work ethic. I saw his commitment. And I saw, oh, wow, like he really needs a muse. He really needs someone just to believe in him. So where I had to stay in the feminine pole was not trying to go in and micromanage how he was going to make money, but just love him, introduce him to some people, kind of go here and let him run with it. And it change quite quickly. Within a year of us being together, he was making a lot of money, paid off the debt. And within three years of us being together, we were at the same place. So, and now I think he probably makes more than me. So I just share that personal story because I think that there's, in this conversation, there's so much nuance and so much depends on the polarity within the relationship. And Mm -hmm. if the man, and if, if in your relationship, so in my relationship, I'm clear I want to hold the feminine pole the majority of the time. A lot of times I hold the masculine pole and we're doing business stuff and he's visionary and dreamland and creativity. And I'm like, and this needs to happen and this needs to happen and this needs to happen. So we can play with that polarity, but I'm clear in our relationship, I want to hold the more feminine pole. So what became crucial was that no matter who was making the money in our relationship, Like he was showing up as that strong masculine pull in other ways. And I think what has happened to men 
is that there's been so much confusion around what it means to be a man. You know, so women have really changed and gender roles have really changed. And I think a lot of men are like, okay, is this unhealthy masculine? Is this toxic masculinity? What does it mean to be a man? How do I support a woman, but still like do all these things? And I think that confusion has made a lot of men uncertain about their own masculinity and the way that they want to show up. So if you then add to it, then she's the breadwinner when we already have this masculinity that doesn't really feel embodied because so many men have defined themselves on how much money they make. So if they don't make the money, then they're their self-confidence is threatened. They feel they're not as attractive. So they can kind of, their masculinity can dwindle a little bit. And that's what upsets the dynamic, I think, more than the woman actually making more money. Does that make sense what I'm saying so far? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. So where, and I, I, I can think of many clients we've worked with where the woman has been making more money. And again, where it's a problem is if when she comes home, she doesn't take CEO hat off or whatever her role is. She comes home and she's still in the, I'm managing everything, I'm running the house type of energy. You do this, you do this. And the man who may have a job or be a stay-at-home dad or whatever, but may not be as making as much, then feels like his boss is coming home, not his lover. And that then upsets the polarity. So we've got a man who's not feeling really centered at his masculine. And we've got a woman who's coming home and to compete in the workforce and to be the breadwinner, she's got to be in her masculine energy. But when she comes home, she's still in that energy. And then all the polarity is like all kerfuffled. So if there is that dynamic where woman is making more and you're in that traditional heterosexual woman holds a feminine pole, male holds a masculine pole relationship, it's so important for the man to really embody his masculinity and hold that. And for the woman to see all the ways that he is masculine and all the things that define masculinity other than how much money he makes. Mm -hmm. And for the man to see the woman, not just as the breadwinner, (laughs) but as the woman that he is taking care of in some way. And I can think of a particular couple that we're working with and She's massively the breadwinner and he's not working. And what we've really had to work with in the relationship is that at home, like he's got to step into his leadership because they were in a pattern of her coming home. And depending on how her workday went, that dictated the mood of the house. And he would just adapt to whatever mood she was in. And I'm like, that's not masculinity. (laughs) Adaptation is not, no, you got to lead, you know, come in and you, you lead that. And so I think this is such a beautiful and interesting change that we're seeing mm-hmm. in that these the gender roles are shifting. And I don't think all gender roles are bad and wrong. And I think certain gender roles or ways that we hold a masculine or feminine pole in a relationship are important to the polarity. So I say to women, like, if you are the breadwinner and you are making more money, number one, you better not be resentful about it because that's going to be a huge problem in the relationship. Like just, just toxic in the relationship. You know, even if you never tell your partner that he is going to feel it and that's mm-hmm. going to totally threaten his masculinity and make him more unattractive to you if you hold, hold that resentment. And, and second, when you get home, you drop into that feminine energy. You can't be who you are at work in your relationship. 
So I'm curious your thoughts on all this. Well, I, you know, I really appreciate everything that you said because it's, it is a conundrum. I, I really especially appreciated the notion of like not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. You know, I think that we've entered into this time period where there's this notion that like all gender roles are wrong and bad and need to be eliminated. And I, I just fundamentally disagree with that. I think that that, I think that's very dangerous. I think that it, you know, for a number of reasons, psychologically and spiritually, I mean, even if you read the hermetic principles, it talks about gender, you know, being, being a a primary part of reality. We see it everywhere. I mean, I've had the, one of the world's leading primatologists on the show and talked about how gender shows up within primates, you know, and it's yeah. a very real thing that actually is an integral and irrevocable part of, of their societal construct. And yeah. so to, to try and eliminate that, I think is, is really dangerous. Um, Agree. But, and I think that there is some of that, you know, that has emerged within our culture is like, there's this, there is this swing towards trying to like eradicate any, any and all gender roles as if they are all terrible. And I think that those things actually help us find meaning and purpose and function sometimes and direction and, you know, all of these beautiful things that we, that we want as human beings. So, so I think that's the kind of, maybe I'll just start with that from like an esoteric standpoint, but I think more, more specifically, I think what you're saying is, is bang on in the sense that it's less about the money. I think, you know, in the, if, if we were in like a red pill forum, I could hear, <laughs> you know, the, yeah. the, the notion of like the man has to make more, otherwise the relationship will never work. Right. Um, but I do think, you know, I've seen examples of couples where the man is just a very potent individual who's very connected to his own sense of worth and value that is not connected to whether or not he makes $5 million right. or $500,000 or $50,000, right? It just doesn't matter. Um, and I think that that is what breeds the attraction and the yep. connection and the stability. And I think it's hard to piece those things apart when they've been very connected for a long time, you know, for the yep. last hundred years. I think we went through a period where your worth and your value as a man and your masculinity was connected to this very mono monoistic version of you need to provide. Otherwise right. you are not a man. You know, I, I do think that if a couple was in that scenario, because I, I know, I mean, I've, I've worked with clients in that, in that scenario where she's making more money and they're both okay with it, or maybe it's creating some tension. Where should a couple start in terms of that conversation? You know, like yeah. what are some of the things that, that they should be talking about? Cause I think in our modern culture, you know, there's certain individuals who are just like, well, I'm not going to date men who make less than me, which seems hypocritical. I mean, I can't imagine a man being like, I'm not going to date a woman who makes less than me. It would just, <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, maybe the version of that is yeah. I'm not going to date a woman who I think is less attractive than me, but right. uh, that feels very sort of shallow in, in, in its yeah. nature. But like, where should people start? What conversations should couples be having about money, period? And then how do they approach this conversation of mm-hmm. she makes more than him? Well, one thing that, you know, I'm grateful in our relationship, we've been this way since the start. We were super honest about money from the get-go. And that's another thing that 
made Steph attractive to me. He had no shame. I mean, he did that I learned later, but when he presented it to me, he didn't hide it. He wasn't secretive. He didn't pretend. And he was just really honest about it, about where where he was in it. And that kind of honesty and that kind of transparency is a really good place to start. Just like, where are we? And then what do we really want? You know, what do we really want? Because a lot of women think that they want a man who makes money. But what they really want is a man they can trust to get things done and to handle things and to have their back. And I would challenge any woman that I'm working with who's saying, oh, I only want someone that makes more money to me. I'd be like, why? What's the feeling that's going to provide you with? And they're going to say security, safety, things like that. And I'm going to say, okay, well, you can have a man that's making double what you're making and not feel secure and not feel safe because emotionally you don't feel that way. So the conversation around like, what do I really want? What do I really desire? How do I want to, you know, let, let's just talk about polarity, like really decide. Because I mean, Steph and I talked early in our relationship. We didn't assume like, do you want to hold the masculine pole and I'll hold the feminine pole? Like that was the assumption, but we actually talked about it. And I said, yes, like I have to be in my masculinity so much in the world or my masculine side. I'd really love in my relationships and I have to do that. And I have to do that. And we got really honest about, okay, what does feminine look like to you? What does it look like to you? What does masculine look like to you? What are the roles that we're really stepping into? Because there's so, there's so many other ways that someone can be masculine other than making money. There's so many other ways. And so getting really, really clear about that, what that looks like. And then coming, like getting honest about, is there resentment? Because if in a situation where the woman's making more money because she has to, not because she wants to, that's a different conversation. Mm. And if she really is honest about like, I feel like I have to because you're not pulling your weight, that's different than I actually love what I'm doing. And it just so happens that I make more money and we're going to have different kinds of roles because one leads to resentment, the other doesn't. I've said resentment about 50 times because that's the key thing so I see coming up yeah. in, <laughs> in this kind of dynamic. It's so yes. huge. And this is, I've you know been doing this 20 years and all people are great at holding resentment, but back to the anger conversation because women often don't express or they do it in more reactive ways or emotion-based ways. Mm it leads to resentment. You know, kind of like back, if we go back to middle school, boys have a problem, they just punch, they just fight and it's over with. Women, it's like passive aggressive, turning people against you, manipulation. You know, I'm making huge generalizations again, but it's based on a lot of experience and personal experience and seeing people go through it. So anyway, back to the, what do we do? Having that kind of transparency, having that kind of honesty about, what does this look like for me? What do I really want? Am I actually happy in this role? Like, am I happy being the breadwinner? Are you happy making less money? And if not, what are we going to do about it? How are we going to, because it's a we problem, not a me problem. Hmm. And, or not even problem, challenge, opportunity, whatever you want to call it. But it is a problem if it's not talked about. And this is also where I think, you know, a, a lot of the couples that Steph and I have worked with, this has been the dynamic. And our work with them has been everything I'm talking about, the transparency, the honesty, getting really clear on like, are both people happy in these roles? 
And then what are any unspoken resentments that need to be spoken? And how do we really bring that polarity back? I think those are, those are great guidelines. And I think it's super important that you're talking about resentment because it is, I mean, it's an intimacy killer. It's a relationship killer. You know, it's just resentment is a destroyer of relational worlds. And money is one of those portals, for lack of a better term, yeah. that it enters through because money's hard to talk about. And everybody has stories about it and beliefs about it. And it's, it can be, it can be crippling. So I appreciate that perspective. I think maybe we'll pause here and do like a round two at some point where we get to okay. go a little deeper into this. Cause I think this is probably a good place to, to pause after the conversation about, you know, women and anger. I'm sure that we'll have follow-up questions from the audience, how to deal with financial discrepancies, which naturally come up. Uh, so you're listening to this, DM me the questions that you have. Christine and I will address it on a part two at some point because this was a wonderful conversation. Christine, what do you want to leave yeah. people with uh, in terms of where they can find you, where they can find your work and learn more about you? Oh, I just wanted to say one more thing, if that's okay, in Please. terms of like the part two yeah. that I'd love to talk about that I hear from a lot of men. So a lot of men are like women are saying, I want you to be more introspective. I want you to do your work more. Like a lot of women are on this huge consciousness, personal growth path and are wanting men to be there with them. And a lot of men are like, I don't know how to do that or I'm not interested or I don't really know what she wants or whatever. So I'd love to dive into what women are really asking for <laughs> what are when women they're saying, for, yeah. Go, to, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> go to therapy with me or do this workshop with me or do your own work or all those kinds of things. That would be a juicy thing to start to get into. So the best place to connect with me is my podcast, which you're going to be on, um, over at and on with it, which is a mix of interviews like this, conversations like this. And I also do unscripted, unedited, unproduced coaching sessions with people. So one episode a week is you hear me coach someone that I've never talked to before. So you learn a lot about personal development and her child work, spiritual psychology, all the things. Um, and then Instagram's Christine Hassler. My website's Christine Hassler. If you're, if you have a woman that you want to send to my retreat so she can really have an emotional cleanse and come back totally in her feminine, that you can find that at christinehasler.com slash signature retreat. And that's happening in October in San Diego. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining me and for everybody else that's out there. As always, don't forget to man it forward and share this episode with somebody that you know will enjoy it. And until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off.